You're listening to 17 Karat K-Pop, the show that's a little bit of everything with a K-Pop twist. Visit 17karatkpop.weebly.com for more information about the show. That's 17-C-A-R-A-T-K-P-O-P.weebly.com. Enjoy the show! Hello everybody, and welcome back to 17 Karat K-Pop. Today on the show, I want to talk about Thai pop, and is Thai pop the next big thing? My thoughts on that, as well as a new Thai girl group who I'm really excited to hear more from in the future. Also, we have to recap the BTS online concert weekend that we had with the latest virtual concert, as well as some other developments in terms of socially distant concerts, the latest news on that front, There are new 17 teasers, and the track list is out now for the upcoming 17 comeback, so we've got to freak out about that together. Also, there are some stories regarding new content from other stars, like a new webtoon, new Weaver's channel, a bunch of just new, great, exciting stuff coming out of the world of K-pop, and in general, just pop music. So, lots to get to. Really quick, before we dive right into the stories for today... I just want to plug one last time, shamelessly, my latest NCT-dedicated episode of the show. It's just called Resonance Part 1 is here. I believe I put three exclamation points after here, but yeah, anyway. So I would check that out. I was clearly very excited, but I do think I kept my fangirling in check and was relatively calm during recording that. It's my total recap of the latest NCT album, Resonance Part 1. I released my review a few hours after the album came out, after I had time to really listen to it and just reflect on it. And I just think so highly of NCT. I'm always impressed by their music, their performances, the video content they put out. The whole world they're creating through their music, I really admire. So please spread the word about that episode. I'm really proud of it and share it with fellow N-citizens. And I would just love to get the word out about that episode. It's one that I'm really proud of. I I really hope I did the album justice and expressed accurately how highly I think of NCT and why. And aside from just reviewing the album, I do tie it back into what I've talked about on previous NCT-dedicated episodes of my show, all my theories about their music video world, the new symbols, the Easter eggs I found that reflect back to old NCT videos, and all of that. So it's an ultimate fan guide to the latest NCT content, and I'm very proud of it. So that's just a shameless plug. Now let's get on to today's headlines. Three yays and two nays to share Yay number one, which is also nay number one, is the BTS online Map of the Soul concert weekend we had. Now hear me out, it's mostly a yay. I just say nay because I don't like being wrong. And if you recall, on a previous episode of the show, I listed my dream ideal set list for BTS. So I guess that was not really a prediction, more of just me fantasizing. But still, the set list I would have just changed a bit. So if I had to say so. My, I was wondering how much I would appear like a psychic when comparing the actual set list for their show to what I dreamed up for the Map of the Soul tour months ago. And they did not line up as much as I would have hoped to be like, wow, I'm psychic. So that's the name. But for the most part, of course, BTS did a great job as always. And they did have, they did actually start the show and end the show exactly as I predicted and hoped for. They start with On and the drum line and everything. Super anthemic and hypes you up. And then they end with the We Are Bulletproof Eternal so we can all cry together at the end. So that I really appreciate. But there are some parts that I just would have changed in the set list. So here was what the actual set list was, at least from day one of the BTS weekend. On, no, 
We Are Bulletproof Part 2, Persona, Boy in Love, Dionysus, Shadow, Black Swan, Ugh, Zero O'Clock, My Time, Filter, Moon, Inner Child, Ego, Boy with Love, DNA, Dope, No More Dream, Butterfly, Run, Dynamite, and We Are Bulletproof Eternal. That's, of course, it's not like they could ever have a bad set list because their whole discography is just incredible, but I would have hoped to have seen them perform live more mashups. So in my dream set list, I suggested that they combine things like Jungkook would sing Begin and then My Time, and V would then sing Stigma and then Inner Child. Jimin could sing Lie and then Filter. So we'd have that cool contrast between their Wings era angst in their songs and the current, a little more carefree Map of the Soul era songs. I thought those contrasts would be cool. I would have also loved a Boy in Love and Boy with Love mashup and just other in general combinations of songs. And in general, I would have put some more B-sides on the list that were or at least songs that are less often played these days, because, I mean, I love Dynamite, of course, but come on, we've heard Dynamite so much, it's so performed so many times in just the past month. I would have replaced Dynamite with something else that we haven't seen a live version of lately. I also probably would have changed Black Swan, because we've seen a lot of versions of that. Boy in Love. No, Boy in Love, I would have. Boy with Love, I might have changed. Just, I wanted to see some more that I wouldn't have seen otherwise. But, on the whole, besides the set list, the show was, of course, great as always. And the one, sh the one song I knew they had to sing, besides We Are Bulletproof Eternal, was Run. Because my non-K-pop... The people in my life who are not K-pop listeners at all, even they agree, Run is one of their best quality songs ever. Truly, objectively, it's even... I, you know, obviously, I can't say that super objectively, but from objective listeners, even they agree that Run is just so well done. It's one of BTS's best works. It really holds up. So I'm so glad they keep that fan favorite in the set list still after these years have gone by. So anyway, so Run was in there at least. So what was needed to be in the set list was in there, bottom line. And also, it had the all the great hallmarks of a of an in person BTS event. Their professionalism was on display, of course. They're giving one hundred and ten percent of their effort every time. I wouldn't have even remembered that Yoongi had shoulder issues if he hadn't brought it up. But they just always managed to pull off a look and be so polished in their performances. It was two hours, so that was that was nice and longer than the previous online concert event. The settings were are of course a huge aspect of their storytelling, all the visuals, like the the four walls of fans for the song Butterfly and all of that, the sea of purple light sticks you could see, and all the fan made signs and the VCRs and the speeches, all of it was very much like, they added everything you would expect to see from BTS in a, in an in-person concert, so they try to make it as much like the in-person concert as possible, and I really respect that and appreciated that. And, of course, one of my favorite parts of any BTS show is Namjoon's speeches, so I've got to share some of my favorite quotes from that because his quotes always really stick with me and are worth having not just because they're great pieces of life advice, but just because there are always hidden Easter eggs in his speeches, and then sometimes up to a year later, we then we suddenly realize what he hinted at all that time ago. So keep your eyes out for him referencing the things that he references in the following quotes, as well as just internalize this good advice. Quote, Music is our language and dream is our map. 
each of us holding different flags with different colors, singing different tales in different languages, we will march together until the end of times. We saw our faces, felt our energy, charged each other's batteries. I believe in those years. The belief and energy we built together will never betray us. So I'm happy. I hope you can smile, feel it, and vibe like we're doing now together. And he said later on similar quotes about, wow, I'm literally so happy. I don't even have a religion, but I thank God that we have this technology and we can connect in this way. I'm genuinely so happy right now that we get to, you know, have this ability and live in 2020 in a way that we can experience virtual concerts and things like that. He also said, quote, it's no one's fault, not yours, not mine, not ours. It's no one's fault. We're people, we're humans, we're just doing as best we can. He said, quote, if there's no way, let's draw the map, the whole map again. And, quote, the armies I know and the BTS you all know, we're all strong, we'll find a way. So really comforting words reminding us that they're in this struggle too, and they're there for us, and we're there for them, and all that sappy stuff I've already ranted about in BTS-specific episodes of the show, so I'll save you the sappy stuff for now. But I will just say, please take in mind what he said about how Especially the quote, it's no one's fault, we're people, we're just doing the best we can. Because that summarizes, I think, how we should all be treating everything in 2020. That it's no one's fault, like this is a glow. If there's anything that taught us not to blame anyone for a pandemic, it's this pandemic. You know, it's so globally influential and it's no one's fault and any, if you're placing specific blame on anyone from any part of the world for a virus that hurt everyone in the world, it's just so messed up and it leads to so much hate and unnecessary stereotyping and just please keep in mind how you characterize something like this because it is something we're all struggling with and we can all get through it but not if we try to figure out who we can point fingers at. So I appreciate the way he ad- addressed that di- that discussion I also really like that he constantly talks about the way that we are all so different, but that's actually a strength. Diversity is a strength, not a weakness in a world. Just a great outlook on life, especially for 2020. So if there's any year where it just felt very essential to have a BTS concert and just so fitting, it's in 2020. And their message is really just stand the test of time. And I really, really appreciate getting to have their words of encouragement or reminders that they're so human still even though they're the biggest stars in the world they still are so humble and they're just like us and they're for us so I also really want to keep in mind for the theorist's sake that he kept using the word dream and he also talked about drawing the map again so I feel like future titles of songs or music video themes or things like that are going to be about dreams and maybe another reference because we've had no more dream Back to Dream maybe is a song title, or Dreams Come True maybe will be a song title. I feel like they'll bring that back. Also, the word map probably, like, maybe redrawing the map or redraw it or, like, redo it. I don't know. Some sort of thing along the lines of drawing or redoing something will probably be involved as well about creating your own path. So just keep an eye out for those. And I would also keep in mind the ways that they drew connections to past music videos the VCR moments had the, there's one moment during the VCRs where they had the BTS members in front of like a smoke display, so you had the like animated images of BTS on the screen surrounded by smoke, and that reminded me of that Wings era cover art because there were four versions of the Wings album cover, and if you put them all together, it looked like a de- like the design showed all this smoke, and so that was a nice little nod to the Wings era. 
There were also other images, animations on the screen during VCR time that were reference references back to the Wings era, like Jungkook with the bird cage, although in this instance the bird was just flying free of the cage as opposed to have like been like a kind of an um, possibly negative omen in the begin video or just like out of his control this time he's the one holding the cage if that makes sense also there was the scene with Yoongi and all of the followers that he has in the shadow video there was the scene where V holds that little girl's hand in the on video there was the larger than life drum set and the Noah's Ark setting from the on video there was the giant Namjoon next to the little Namjoon, like in the Persona video. There was Jungkook from the On video with his hands tied. Anyway, so a lot of nods to Map of the Soul videos and the Wings era. And so the animations were just incredibly well done. And the visual element, they do so well. Also, does that, has anyone been noticing the parallels between TXT video visuals and BTS video visuals? I don't know if this is intentional or not, but like when BTS performed this weekend the No More Dream and other like real throwbacks, they had the burning building set, which looked a lot like the burning house in the Can't You See Me TXT video to me. And then there are those cliffs from the on video that look kind of like the Puma setting from the TXT video. And I know that that's something you could have noticed before this weekend too, but it was also in the animation. It just made me think of that. And past things too, like with BTS, there was a, I believe it was during Boy With Love promo. It was some Map of the Soul era promo where BTS promo pictures had them with like little doodles on them, like little cat ears and devil horns or uh, tails and all this stuff anyway. So it was a whole like little devil doodle on them during that promo for those promo pics and txt had the same thing in one in their angel or devil music video so things like that i just feel like they keep giving little nods to txt in their content and vice versa so just something i've been noticing about their work so this event was really really well well received with 993,000 viewers so nearly a million people tuned in from 191 countries all over the world it was a huge event it actually cost eight times more to pull off than the previous bts online show it had four stages all sorts of virtual reality style technology and six different viewing camera angles so a very immersive concert experience very well done very impressive Yay number two has to be all of the success and recognition that Ace is getting these days. They are the rookie group I actually spent quite a long time in my episode Goblin to the Rhythm talking about. Um, that's the word Goblin and then to the rhythm. Anyway, so I would check that out if you want the whole story of how I became a fan of Ace. But for today, I'm just going to say congrats to Ace because they're a rookie group who really started out not being super well known for much except their fashion choices, and now they are known for so much more, and their depth of their storytelling is being recognized, and I'm just so happy for them and their underdog story. So congrats to Ace, because they also just formed a partnership with Storyverse Company, so Be Interactive, their company, teamed up with Storyverse, and Ace is going to get their own webtoon as a result of this partnership. So stay tuned, I'm very excited. I think they'll go somewhere with the favorite voice concept and those characters, and that means that even if the story doesn't end up being good for some reason, the visuals and the outfits will. So in some way, we're in for a treat. 
And my third yay for today is just NCT's content this week. So exciting, such a good time to be an N-Citizen because not only have we had the premiere of the NCT World 2.0 reality show and of course the new album and the V-Live premiere before the album release and everything, that V-Live event that was happening the hour before their album dropped reached over a billion hearts before the event even started and by the end it had reached 2.3 billion hearts and 12.5 million views. So they got the hype up early for this, and then it topped the iTunes charts, this album, in at least 32 countries. Make-A-Wish became the NCT video to get the most views in the first 24 hours, so it passed Kick It's record. And the best part is that now Make-A-Wish is on the list of top 20 K-pop videos of all time that have reached t- the highest amount of views within the first 24 hours. So that is that is really exciting. The, also, I think the... The whole Wish 2020 program is really smart. It's this marketing strategy they're doing where basically you have to buy a copy of the album to participate. And when you do, you go to this Wish 2020 website and enter your album serial number. And then that grants you access to vote for which NCT content you want. So they might play a mafia game. They might have some sort of pajama party, some sort of live stream content. And you get to vote on the theme, but only if you insert your album serial number on the site. That voting goes until October 31st, just a PSA. But I find that really, really clever and another way to get people to buy the album. SM Entertainment's really good at marketing, as I've said before. Anyway, so the album and specifically the Make-A-Wish video have really just been doing so well already. Make-A-Wish, last time I checked, was at like... 25 26 million views or at least was within just the first 24 hours it's they were really going places with this album and part two isn't even out yet so very excited for what the rest of 2020 holds for them now my main nay of the day aside from the set list issue was just that and it's something i wasn't even sure if i would bring up but i do think it is a teachable moment and as an autistic person i would just feel weird not saying something because if I never say something, then this will happen again, and then that doesn't just personally offend me, but it'll offend everyone else who is autistic, and so I just want to address this. So, no shade specifically to J of Day 6, but might as well just not be evasive about who I'm talking about, and his whole Twitter fiasco this week, I want to talk about, but not in a way where I want you to throw hate at him or anything, because he genuinely seems open to learning from his mistake, but I'm just... It's still a good teachable moment that's worth remembering, so I decided I will talk about it. So what Jay did basically was he was joking about how people need to understand sarcasm more, and they don't. And that may seem like a pretty harmless comment, but someone pointed out in the replies that people who are neurodivergent, which is a a way to describe people who are autistic or have ADHD, things like that. I'm pointing out that neurodivergent people sometimes really struggle with sarcasm. They fail to interpret it and understand that you were just joking. And so saying, you know, people need to learn to take a joke is a a little bit unintentionally exclusionary to say. But in response to this being called out in this way, I guess you could say, Jay basically made fun of of have of being neurodivergent basically basically said um omg i'm neurodivergent too i have adhd and anxiety and there are a lot of issues with that i don't know if he has adhd that's that is is what it is if he does okay like 
I don't care. Um, great that he's pretty open and casual about saying so because it shouldn't be stigmatized. But anxiety is not a neurodiversity thing. It is a, it is a mental illness which is different. Like conflating a neurodivergent aspect of yourself with a mental illness is just so problematic. And you know, as someone with anxiety and autism. I get it, and like I get why people were really hurt by this because they are so different. And autism is something I live or I have. It's just who I am. Whereas anxiety is something I work on. I'm not like it's it's a different way of talking about it. Like there, I don't want to be cured of autism. It's part of me. That would be like curing yourself of having blue eyes because you'd rather have brown eyes. Like why are you focused on trying to fix something that you were born like? And so. Just conflating those things was really upsetting. And then he doubled down further by tweeting about how anyone who was offended by that comment is just basically trying to cancel him, and he claimed to be a victim of cancel culture, and it was a whole thing. And then he sort of apologized. It was a very, very, very short, uh, vague apology that didn't really explain what he had learned from what he said or anything. But then he did issue a bit of a longer apology and he deleted the previous tweets and everything and a, a fan actually had emailed him begging him to please say something because he had targeted a specific fan account that was getting a bunch of harassment due to Jay's fans being upset about what he um about anyone calling him out really and so this friend of that fan was basically pleading with Jay to please call it out and stop his fans from doing that and he did and so I appreciate that so anyway what I'm saying is that first of all I'm glad he learned from this but I is, do think we need to be aware of that that whenever someone calls out what you said and says actually some people were upset by that just just listen just hear them out please and then second thing is that it bugged me seeing the replies from people who just were like, you didn't mean anything, Ron, because to me, impact is always bigger than intent. You can have okay intentions, and he did. He had innocent intentions, but impact is important to acknowledge. And so for everyone apologizing for him, I would just like to say that if you are not neurodivergent, maybe wait for people in the neurodivergent community to voice their views. Don't apologize for someone for something that wasn't even really personally offensive to you in the same way. So I just was I just wish people would not insist that you accept his apology or not right away. Give us time to to register what he's saying and doing because I knew I needed time to process it. And as much as I've spent my whole life, frankly, like hearing comments that are derogatory towards autistic people and stuff, whether they meant to or not, it still hurts and it's still not something I've grown numb to or ever will. So, and it really just added salt to the wound when he just blamed cancel culture for asking to be made aware of how we see the world differently and realizing how we are sensitive to certain topics. And blame cancel culture was just another, like I said, salt to the wound situation. So I just want people to keep that in mind. And another thing I want to take a moment to say is just please, when you are talking about neurodivergent people, please be aware of how you do that. So neurodivergent is the a term that I like using, and I, I hope people use that 
people who say with special needs, that is a bit outdated of a phrase. Some people don't mind saying that, but some people do. It rubs them the wrong way. So ask. Always ask. You know, how do you want to be referred to? And how do you want others to be referred to? So for me, I just call other people neurotypical, and I'm neurodivergent. But some people may prefer to say neuromajority instead of neurotypical. It's just, it's all very important and carries these nuances that differ among people. So just ask us how we want to be described. I saw a lot of people in the comments talking about, well, you know, uh, I hope uh, as someone with autism, I hope you do this, or as someone who has autism, I hope you apologize. And that's okay because some people like that, but just please do keep in mind that if you're talking about people who are autistic like me and you are not, ask them how they want to be referred to because I personally prefer to be called autistic. Like it's another adjective, not someone with it or someone who has it as if it's some disease or something. And it also feels weird to say that I have something because it's not like I pick it up and drop it off whenever it's inconvenient. I just live with it. It's in me. It's another adjective. It's just a weird way to phrase it that gets to me. So like I said, everyone has these nuanced interpretations of how they want to be referred to and how they want their conditions to be referred to. So please just keep that in mind when you talk online. And also keep in mind that being online is probably not always the right place for nuanced discourse overall. So just be aware of what you're saying and be mindful of the impact more than the intent. So... In sum, the main big news stories that I have yays and nays about were the BTS concert weekend, Jay's comments online that were causing quite the stir, NCT's album success, and Ace getting their own webtoon. Let's lighten things up and talk about some quicker headlines now. N-Hyphen officially announced their fandom name, which is N-Gene, N-Gin mixed with Gene, and I just think that's super cute talking about, you know, how an engine is like powering you forward and a gene being like it's in your DNA, you were destined to be a fan of them essentially and have that relationship with them. A very cute meaning for the band name. Heejin from the group Good Day has officially gotten married. Crystal from F of X officially left SM Entertainment and decided to join a different company that is home to several former singers turned actors, so I guess she's heading down a more actor-focused route for the future. Weekly and Sunmi are the latest artists to have their own Weavers platforms. Park Hyun from Block B is officially enlisting in the military October 19th. Blackpink is having a TikTok stage. I'm not sure what that means exactly, but some sort of event via TikTok October 21st, so mark your calendars. Also, their Netflix documentary is officially available for streaming now. It's called Blackpink Light Up the Sky. Jessie has a new clothing line that you can find out more about and follow if you go to Instagram at jessie.collections. That's J-E-S-S-I, so make sure you check that out. BTS won for the fourth year in a row at the BBMAs for the Top Social Artist Award, and their statement in response was, quote, We think this award is living proof that no matter where we are, ARMY and BTS stay so closely connected, which, of course, we love to hear. And speaking of BTS, they have officially announced there's going to be a a series of Map of the Soul pop-up stores that will have in-person components in Seoul, Tokyo, and Singapore, but then it'll be mostly online for other countries. The in-person pop-up exhibits will feature rooms full of merch to buy, as well as photo op spaces that recreate music video scenes and other concepts and aesthetics that are part of BTS's universe, as well as a specific Tiny Tan character-themed section. So it sounds really, really cute. And the online access, though, will also include 
that amount, which is around 300 unique products that are BTS-themed, you can buy. This event will start in Seoul October 23rd, and then will travel throughout the world. So in Korea and the USA, access opens up online October 23rd, and will last until January 24th of 2021. And then in Europe and the rest of Asia outside of Korea, they can access this store November 14th of 2020 through February 14th of 2021. Also, I just want to take a second to say happy belated birthday to Jimin, one of my favorite Libras. 17 updates. 24 hours went platinum in Japan. Soon Guan's sister has her first single out, Our Night. And the tracklist and highlight medley are here for 17's new release, Semicolon. I'm so excited for that, and I'm going to talk a lot more about it on the next one of the next episodes of the show of course we have to spend a lot of time in a future episode talking about the new release but I've I'm already picking up on all sorts of easter eggs and theor overanalyzing and theorizing about the music video teaser and stuff so get I'm getting very hyped up for that and I haven't even come down from the natural high I got from the new NCT album release so it'll I'll be really in for you'll be in for a lot of energetic shows coming up soon stat wise Blackpink's album is really breaking records. It reached number one on the top global albums chart in the song debut chart on Spotify. The album also reached number two in the UK, which is the highest ever in the UK for a K-pop girl group. And also became, the Blackpink album became the highest charting girl group album on the Billboard 200 since Danity King in 2008. Side note, that album is everything still. That Danity Kane Welcome to the Dollhouse album, I mean Damaged, defined my younger years as a pop music fan. Just saying. Anyway, so they surpassed Danity Kane from 2008, so it's been over a decade, and Blackpink officially got that title again as a high, that high-charting girl group on the Billboard 200. The song Love Sick Girls hit number one on the Billboard Global 200, excluding U.S. chart. And two of the B-sides actually ended up on the World Digital Singles chart, Pretty Savage and You Never Know. Also, the album reached number seven on the charts in Germany. More updates. Entering the 5 million views club is Dawn's Dawn Diddy Dawn. Entering the 40 million views club is Jesse's New New Nana. 60 million views got Seven's Not By The Moon. 300 million views Blackpink's Kill This Love Dance practice video. 350 million views, Twice as Fancy, and BTS with Boy with Love, sorry, Boy in Love, and then 8 million likes for J-Hope and Becky G's Chicken Noodle Soup collab, and 1 billion views for Blackpink's Boombaya. It passed the billion views milestone, becoming the fastest debut K-pop video to reach that record. Some more BTS records, Jin's Jin solo B-side track from Map of the Soul 7, it's called Moon, and is now officially the longest charting BTS solo song on the Melon chart. BTS's Dynamite is officially the only single to sell 1 million downloads in 2020 in the USA, and BTS just became the sixth act to have more than one number one Hot 100 single in 2020. Also, they became the only the fifth group in the world to ever in history simultaneously hold the number one and number two spots on the Billboard Hot 100 list for Dynamite and now thanks to their Savage Love remix with Jason Derulo. Juhani's Psyche mixtape topped iTunes charts in at least 16 different countries. Pentagon's latest album reached number one on iTunes in nine different regions. 
And lastly, one more BTS news update. They became the first artist to top the Billboard Social 50 chart for 200 weeks in a row. Most talked about on social media, 200 weeks in a row. In the world of quarantunes and online concert events, Janelle Monet is having a cool VR experience through YouTube October 19th at 9 p.m. This will be following the premiere of the Lovecraft Country HBO series finale, and it's going to be basically an interactive show where Monet controls the shots thanks to her avatar. So through her avatar, she'll control the direction of the show. There will also be some sort of virtual mystery room event before Monet's part of the evening. So a lot of surprises in store. I guess that just goes with the theme of Lovecraft Country as a show. So get get ready for that experience that's happening this Monday again at 9 p.m. Talked about this on the show before, but there's an update in this story. The Flaming Lips tried before having a show where each audience member could be in a bubble where they could basically stand in a literal bubble, some inflatable-type bubble to keep socially distant from each other during a live performance. And now they plan to do that more. It was kind of, at first, a test run, a joke for their late show appearance, but now they really sound like they want to do an actual tour. And they're going to start with this Oklahoma City venue where each each spot that it would be like a marker for socially distant people will also feature this deflated bubble that people can step into while waiting you. So they're actually going through with this. They've actually had a history of using those bubbles. Way back in 2006, there was this Halloween parade, and they basically walked in these bubbles. One of the band members did for like a full hour just walking around in this parade in a bubble. And so they know how to do it long term and be okay with that. So I'm not sure if I would like being in that bubble. I might freak out and feel claustrophobic, but we'll see. I'm very curious what the audience reaction is to this event. The latest online K-pop show to mark your calendars for that was just announced is for Dreamcatcher through My Music Taste. Their online show will be November 7th at 10 p.m. Korean time, which I believe is 8 a.m. Chicago time, November 7th. Last virtual event to get excited for, the Miku Expo, which will be all virtual for the first time in 2021. There is just not enough time and awareness of where we'll be in terms of controlling the virus for them to have any plans for an in-person an in-person expo next spring or summer so they're just going to have it virtually officially for 2021 this year it was just canceled but they're going to try to make it just like the Miku Expos we like to go to in real life where there'll be egg- virtual exhibitions and performances and all of this stuff so they're going to try to make it as much of an in-person feel as they can More details are coming, but just keep your eyes out for Miku Expo 2021. It will be a thing, and it will be free to stream, which is new for this event, but they're going to try to pull it off thanks to crowdfunding. So that is really quite a sign of what Miku is all about, and we've talked about her a lot before on the show. Check out How to Stand Episode 3 for more, wink wink. But I just thought that story was really interesting, how they're going to try to pull it off. And people need to find ways to pull it off, otherwise they will get penalized, like the Chainsmokers did. We talked about this on the show before, too, how they had a concert where there was not really social distancing, not much mask wearing. It was definitely, it could have been such a super spreader event, and it was just very reckless. And so the New York Department of Health investigated, actually, and now they have officially gotten a verdict where they have been fined $20,000 for violating COVID safety protocols. 
that $20,000 may sound like a big deal, but to me, I feel like if you're the chain smokers, that's just chump change. I'm not sure if it really affected their plans for the future or if it really led to remorse, but it is what it is. Maybe that's the highest fee they could impose for this type of specific situation, not into New York law nitty gritty. So not sure about that, but that sums up the latest news in both the K-pop world and the music world at large, the live music scene, all of that. After the break, we've got to talk about Thai pop and how pop music from Thailand is really expanding its its reach and its hopes and aspirations for having a global impact. Throughout her illustrious career in letters, Maya Angelou gifted, healed, and inspired the world with her words. Now the beauty and spirit of those words lives on in this new and complete collection of poetry that reflects and honors the writer's remarkable life. This definitive compendium will warm the hearts of Maya Angelou's most ardent admirers as it introduces new readers to the legendary poet, activist, and teacher, a phenomenal woman for the ages. This new compilation of Maya Angelou's works of poetry is available now, and again, it's called Maya Angelou, The Complete Poetry. We've talked in previous episodes about how C-pop and J-pop have not made a splash overseas in the same to the same extent at all that K-pop has and why that is. And are those pitfalls also relevant when talking about other types of music, not just C-pop and J-pop? That is a question that has really been up for debate because a lot of music scenes like Latin pop have been having such a big moment the past few years in the United States and just globally. So that may make people think that music is really showing less barriers than ever before in terms of where it can get its audience. But then there are other variables to keep in mind, like that have prevented C-pop and J-pop from promoting internationally that we've talked about before. So which of those categories will be the fate of Thai pop? We're about to find out, but the hopes are that it's the former, not the latter. Thai pop is really hoping to make an international impact, and this was confirmed through the creation of a new girl group called Lyra. This is a group that is based in Bangkok, Thailand. It's a girl group with six members, and they, they came out of a bigger group called BNK48. We've talked about similar groups, so just a quick refresher. AKB48 is a Japanese girl group that formed in 2005. They started out with 24 members that... Actually, they were so not popular at first that they performed for seven people. The full audience size was seven people. But then it grew from 24 members and seven people in the crowd to about 140 members of the group, broken up into teams, so a bunch of different subunits, but 140 collectively and to an audience of thousands. So it really, really grew grew into this cultural force in the J-pop scene over time. Similarly, SNH48 really took off. That group is from Shanghai, China. It's a girl group that now has over 200 members, and that group was created in 2012. And these groups tend to break off into all these different teams called sister acts, and one of those sister acts for AKB48 is now BNK48, basically. And BNK48, I mean, there are different ways that these different groups in Asia distinguish themselves, and there are different levels to how much they sever ties eventually from the group they originally branched off of. And we're not going to get into the whole family tree of sorts of it all, but just to say that they are all trying to create a unique concept and identity for themselves as a group. So these groups that come from 
have, sometimes have literally hundreds of members, they, instead of focusing on how to create, craft an individual persona for each musician, they focus on how to craft an individual persona for each group. And then the group collectively has a concept, like the cutesy group or the mature group or whatever. What Lyra is doing different is that it is only six members, which is actually a small group compared to BNK48. And this is a subunit, a new subunit from members who were previously focused on just being in that group and now are branching off to become a more distance from the main group, side group, with their own unique sound. My first episode of How to Stand, my other podcast, actually really does a deep dive into these J-pop and C-pop groups, but the quickest refresher I can give to listeners who need to remember that story or just didn't listen to it earlier is that AKB48 and SNH48 have similar marketing strategies to this new Thai-pop group, and one of their similarities comes from the format where these are girl groups who are formed through audition programs, and then eventually, actually in some cases, then it's like a yearly election system, and so every few years members are rotated in or out of the group. So the members constantly fluctuate. It's kind of like a graduation system that we've had for like after school and other K-pop groups, and they have the same thing, but a lot of it is fan chosen when they do elections and things like that. And these groups have a unique concept that is artists you can meet. That's the actual description of their concept, artists you can meet, meaning that they are meant to be very approachable and available. And they have a theater based on where they are and what they do. So like AKB48 has an AKB48 theater in their hometown where fans can go for nightly performances of the group. 2020, it's not like that anymore, but typically that's what they do. They have their own theater just for their nightly shows. Sometimes it's located like around like a strip mall type setting, so people might end up watching the show if they're just passing by. But the other cases, it's like a real auditorium. But anyway... So they have like a, their own theater and their fans come and like catch up with them every night. And the goal is to have artists in these groups that are just there to learn and grow. I compare it to the best way I can view it as something that is relatable for fans in the USA of artists. is It's like American Idol or something. A show where you're rooting for someone and following their journey as they get better as a performer over time. You don't expect perfection right away. You get to watch them evolve as artists, and that's the same concept for these groups, where they're recruited more for their personality than their skill level. And then you watch their singing and dancing improve with time, and you kind of root them on and cheer for them then. So it's kind of like a way of forming a friendship with these idols. It's the opposite of the celebs are untouchable approach to this. So that's basically the type of relationship they try to form with fans by having them so regularly visit with their favorite artists and cheer them on in person. So that's the concept they have been working with. They also have a lot of in-person events like handshake events, and of course 2020 makes all of this not the typical thing they do, but they have found ways to connect with fans through a lot of virtual events and things like that. So they continue to try to be out there connecting with their fans as if they were just another friend on their contact list. Other ways these groups promote similarly, they hold their idols to very strict standards, very, very strict. So some members of BNK48 actually had to leave the group due to tardiness, I believe. It was something else like that that was relatively, I guess you could say, a tame way to rebel, in the, at least by USA star standards, but that is an issue, and so they have to meet a lot of specific protocol and things like that. And in AKB48, a scandal can result in you graduating 
or just like being demoted to a different subunit that's viewed as less than another subunit. So it can affect like your placement. It's kind of like being held back in school is kind of how they treat it if you are involved in some sort of scandal as a member of the group. They also have this unique rehiring protocol where you can rejoin the group if you get kicked out, but you have to like re-audition and you have to get then rehired through that process. So we've talked about those standards and how those are similar among those groups, but who we haven't talked about specifically before on either of my podcasts are BNK48. So this group from Bangkok, Thailand, was formed through an audition program in the summer of 2016. They debuted then officially in 2017 in February with 19 members, and then Rena joined, so that made 30 members in April of 2017. Then the auditions after that became a more annual event, with each member having a six-year contract, although they can be renewed. And then their debut single came out in June of 2017, and it was only available to buy for a limited time. And so 13,500 copies got sold, and if you didn't buy a physical copy, then you're kind of out of luck. It's not like it's just on iTunes forever for you to buy. So it was very limited availability, and no music video came out with the release. So it was it was a very, very, very narrow promo strategy focused on the localized audience that they had built up relationships with. They also performed with Icon, just a fun fact. They performed with Icon at the Bangkok event, this Bangkok show in 2017 as well. And then they had their first solo concert in 2018. And then that was followed by, at the end of May 2018, their first album release. How do they make the money so much then if they're not focused on expanding their reach? Well, they do it through what's called the Cool Japan Fund, which, as we talked about before on the show, there are... Um, a lot of parts of Asia that focus a lot on soft power and expanding their cultural influence on other countries, and that is what is at play here. So this Cool Japan Fund is basically a mix of public and private investors uh, contributing to funding projects. So like with SNH48, that is all based on investors. So it's kind of treated like a quantity in a stock market, but it's a band. And it's kind of similar here, where this group is getting funding from this fund that views itself as serving as a way to increase demand for an interest in Japanese cultural exports, in promoting the act overseas, and they can show their interest through investing in the group. So, more recently, this uh, BNK48 group has over 650 million collective views so far on YouTube, so they have quite a social media presence, and nearly 600 million TikTok views so far with the hashtag BNK48. So they are really racking up the views on both YouTube and TikTok, which probably helped prompt the creation of this new subunit group, Lyra. So this new group already has 2 million views of its own on its debut video and actually reached 2 million within the first two days of its release. This group is a subunit from the group with 78 members and now six of them have moved on to the subunit. And they have one main single on Spotify right now and even though that's it, I love it, it goes off. So, you know, go ahead, just a quick PSA. I really love this song, and I'm excited for more of them. It's just a self-titled single that is on Spotify now. They seem to have a lot of interest now in getting more into this world of globalized music. And the ways that I see this actually possibly working out, even though C-pop and J-pop maybe haven't as much as hoped for, is because, first of all, they have in some ways 
So in July 2009, AKB48 performed at the Japan Expo in Paris, and then they performed at a Japanese pop culture festival in Moscow in 2010. Also, they performed at Webster Hall in the USA in 2009. So they've had some really prominent overseas shows at iconic locations. And so it may not be the biggest venue, but it's still, they're still spreading this cultural wave to other countries. That was AKB48, but I do see the similarities going forward for this group located in Bangkok. And also, I see the strategy as being quite successful because it is constant press attention you can get with constant nightly events or nearly nightly, although BNK48 actually has tends to have three shows a week as opposed to the nightly events of AKB48. But it also helps to follow their journey. Like I said, you root for the underdogs, and that can really help, especially in 2020 when emotional attachments are more needed than ever. People are feeling lonely, they're at home, and they just want to feel a sense of connection. So feeling like you're connected to and have a special relationship with these artists is more validating than ever. So I think this year, especially, they may be poised to really connect with a global fan base. I also think that this mix of localized and globalized ways of being might really pay off marketing-wise. So groups like Lyra, they can really have their roots still in their in their own sound of their country, but they also can then promote themselves through content that is universal. So for example, with Lyra, their new single that I'm loving has a lot of traditional Thai instrument, instrumental sounds in it, but it also is sounds like the kind of pop you would hear anywhere in the world in some ways. And so it's a mix of the globalized and localized feels that has characterized the hybrid model that has worked so well for K-pop. So I do see a bright future for the subunit, although 2020 is so unpredictable, who knows? But I do think that the U.S. audience and other global audiences may be receptive to this new group and what they have to offer. Why I decided to talk about Lyra now not just because of their new music video that dropped that already has over 2 million views, but it's also because of the timing of this new partnership, when where Universal Music Thailand partnered up with IM Records, in which is the main Thai music company. So in Thailand, IM Records is the... It's kind of like the Universal of the... Or the Sony Records or whatever of Thailand. And that partnered up with Universal Thailand. So basically... The global the the intent to go global is clearer than ever, and Universal Music actually just launched in an office in Ho Chi Minh City. So that is another indication that they are really working on tapping into this potential T-pop industry, as they call it, and helping promote it overseas. And UMG said in a statement, quote, they're accelerating its focus on growing the entire music ecosystem throughout Southeast Asia, including record music, music publishing, production, live events, brand deals, all of that. So I would just keep your eye out on the scene coming out of Thailand, this T-pop scene, and especially Lyra. And if this formula works, which I think it might, I would say that I would look for more members of those giant groups to be branching off into their own unique subunits. And I wouldn't be surprised if the strategy shift over time to be more familiar to audiences outside of Asia would change so that the groups wouldn't really be in the groups of 200 plus members for very long, that that would be kind of the starting point, and then they would branch off into very distinct groups that sever ties with the main group. 
So it's kind of like in American Idol how there are the audition rounds where there are hundreds of people still involved and they have like the boot camp in Vegas and all of that stuff. And then they just all either go home or they're still there. And so I view that as kind of the way that this is going to work in the future where they will probably end up being in the big group but only for so long and then it'll be super normal for them to just shift members into these subunits or they never enter a subunit and then their career may not really take off as much so I just feel like the subunits will indicate which members they want to invest more in over time and so I would just keep your eyes on this scene and I would keep your eyes on this scene as well as just what Universal Music is doing with their global reach they are clearly intent on being focused on globalization of music material so I would just keep an eye out very fresh sound coming out of Thailand that I would look forward to hearing more from soon. I see this group as being influential not just on how future groups decide to promote themselves globally and like why they would invest time in promoting themselves globally but I also see it as possibly having big shifts in terms of the cultural symbolism of it all as well as the marketing online so with this group I think if they have any shifts to the global music scene it will be not just gaining fans overseas but it will also have to do with showing how much TikTok can help because like I said so many views already over 600 million well nearly 600 million but probably 600 million by now TikTok views with the hashtag BNK48 so if they're they're really harnessing the power of the latest popular apps to promote a group, I think that will be something that other universal music branches in other parts of the world will look at more and more. I also think this group can really set a new precedent in terms of mixing sounds that are unfamiliar with the familiar in a way that doesn't turn fans off but introduces them to new sounds that they aren't used to, traditional instrumentals and things like that. And lastly, I think they can really shift how Asian music has been promoted because, like I've said before, they have a, they often have that localized approach where they don't care as much, especially in Japan, about spreading the music outside of Japan because a lot of it is physical albums, copies, as opposed to streaming services and stuff. But I think that shift may be more and more towards streaming and more... Uh, outside of Japan views of how to promote music may become more prominent there as well if they see the success of groups like Lyra when they harness that power and realize kind of what is catching up with the times in a way. And also I guess there is one more thing I've been thinking about is that this could also cause a shift in how bands are funded because like I said these investors are contributing to the success of Lyra and if they do that I wonder here if that might shift how the USA and other countries view pop culture and view soft power and their willingness to invest in it as they would invest in any other company. The way they market a group may become more like marketing a business, for better or for worse. Just some trends to keep an eye out for. We will definitely revisit this topic in the future as this story develops further. But keep your eyes on this group, check out their new self-titled single, and I'm very excited to hear more from them in the future. So that wraps up today's, all the topics from today's episode, which were quite the variety. Next week, I have some big things happening for the show that I don't want to reveal yet. Some of it's super predictable if you know me and know which album releases I'm so psyched for and have to talk about more. Some of it will be a surprise probably, but just lots to get to. So I will see you for a new episode of How to Stand on Sunday and then more 17 Care K-pop next week. 